This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. The epicenter of history. Studying the single most important thing ever. Talk about a message. A study in the single most important thing ever. Talk about putting some weight on the speaker. Now, I could have said the center of history, but that would miss a certain nuance that I'm wanting you to catch in this message, the epicenter. Epicenter is a very specific word that denotes something very specific. Usually you think earthquake. And ironically, when you think earthquake, you think bad. When in actuality... God has hallmarked the most significant moments in all of universal history with earthquakes. The moments that all of us will sing songs about, dance and jump and shout about. Some of you are like, I don't know that I've ever done that. (laughs) There were earthquakes that marked those moments. Isn't that just an interesting thought? And so God's perspective on an earthquake might be a little different than ours, obviously. And so that's where the word epicenter fits in. And so as we navigate through this, I am going to be showing you a tension that exists. Jesus died on a cross. A cross in the realm of men is a symbol of execution. Bad. It's not something any of us naturally would gravitate towards. And yet, to those of us that have been redeemed, to those of us that have put on a new set of glasses, we look at that same symbol of execution as a as a statement of our life. That's where we find life. What a strange thing to see death as the means of gaining life. Any more than you would naturally see an earthquake as a place of refuge. You ever thought of entering into a... Who wants to go to the epicenter? It's like, yeah, I heard that uh, you know, there's a major earthquake uh, expected right there. Where, where did you say? Point, point right, right here. This is the center. This is going to be the epicenter. All right, here's where, let's build our house here, honey. No one in their right mind is going to look for the epicenter or what may be the epicenter of disaster and stick their life right there. And yet, as Christians, we are called to by Jesus Christ. Come, come here to the epicenter. I want you to build your life right here. Uh, Hudson, we celebrated Hudson, who's my 11 turning 12-year-old. And his birthday yesterday, because we're going to be gone out of uh, state when it's his birthday later December. And uh, so Kipling, known as Dub, uh, did a nice little card for him uh, for his birthday. And the outside, it's really sweet. It says, from uh, Dubber to Hudson. It has a picture of a, a birthday present. And so it's just like warm feelings all over. And then you open it up, and it's, you know, there's some water. You can tell you're underwater, because there's a, two guys in a boat that are watching what's taking place. And there's this huge shark that's in there, and he's eating another shark. Uh, and uh, and there's, there's blood flowing around. And then there's another shark down below that has blood all around it. You can tell it's a cloud of blood all around it. And this one's already been eaten. Uh, here you go. 
for those of us that don't understand the gospel, that's oftentimes how it sounds. I have a gift for you. I have some good news for you. Here. What? In other words, what is that? It looks like death. It looks like gore. This is suffering stripes. People had such a difficult time with the passion of the Christ. Remember the movie by Mel Gibson? I mean, this is violence. Don't go see that. That is violence. And yet, there is something about that suffering that isn't death. It is actually life to us. It doesn't strike terror and fear. It strikes love and adoration and worship. What is different about this than anything else in the world? For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Key scripture. We use this scripture a lot at Ellerslie because Paul is dealing with an unhealthy church in Corinth. And he's dealing with the fact that they're out of balance. They keep emphasizing the wrong things. And so the entire book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, is a correction book to a church that's just out of balance. So he says, look guys, I'm coming to give you a north star for your compass. So most of us in here are probably considered conservatives. In other words, when we look at the Bible, we say, that's true. Well, not many people out there say that. So we're sort of kooky. And yet we look at the Bible and we say, I believe that. I believe that's God's word. However, in a room like this, if we were to start getting doctrinal debates going, we could get quite a whirlwind. Uh, We could get all sorts of divisions. We could break into groups. We could probably have 20 groups, small groups, made that hate each other group by the end of the day if we worked hard at it. In other words, that's what the church and conservatives tend to be really good at. But what we need to understand is there is a North Star as defined in Scripture. And when you approach that word, not just conservatively, but with Jesus as your North Star, it actually solves the riddles. It's like, let's all just agree to fix our compass to the same thing. The epicenter of all history. There was a man that came, and what that man did is everything. That's what we agree on. Without what that man did, we have no life. And that's our bonding point. That's what unites us. Though we have differences in certain areas, we have a similarity in the area that matters the most. Where we build our life. There is one piece of property that all of us are looking at and we're saying, I'm going to build my life right there. Me too. Me three. And we all look around the room and we're like, yeah, that's where I've chosen to build my life too. The epicenter. So I broke the word up into two pieces just so that you can see it. Epi and center. You ever, when I was in, uh, I think it was elementary school, uh, someone would come up to you and say, your epidermis is showing. And they'd be like, what, what, where? And epidermis is the skin layer. You know, it's the outer layer of skin. And so that was really funny when people were like trying to cover themselves up. And so you can try it. Uh, it's, it's what elementary school kids do, but you can still try it. Uh, so epa is outer, okay, just to give you a, a quick uh, etymological lesson here. And then center, most of you understand probably what center is, but it comes from these two words, epa and kentron, which is upon, on top of, and founded on, and then kentron, the middle, the center, the midst. And so what you have when we're describing this key word of epicenter, it's on top of the middle. You figure out the center, and then you build there. And so it's the typical word used for an earthquake, But it's a great word to describe how we choose to live as Christians. What's the middle? Have we found the middle? Have we found the center of everything? Where where are we going to build? And then right there, we plant our life. That's where we build, at the epicenter. So these are the definitions, the classic definitions that you could have for epicenter. That which occupies a cardinal point. 
something situated on center in the position of greatest importance. The point on the Earth's surface vertically above the hypocenter or focus of an earthquake, the point where an earthquake or underground exploding originates. The central point of something typically a difficult or unpleasant situation and often the, great, the, the place of greatest damage. Most of us go, tend, to, tend to head down to option number three. When we think about things like earthquakes, we have a tendency to go, oh, oh yeah, that's an unpleasant situation. Yeah, a place of greatest damage. Yeah, that cross is a place of great suffering, great damage. And there was an explosion of sorts. In the underground world, there was a head being crushed. Something took place right there. And everything that matters to all of us in this room and everyone in the world that doesn't even believe it, it is the center of centers. You want to build your life properly, you need to know what happened right there. The epicenter of the word, word, just the word word is a hard one to describe because you have to use the word word multiple times just to say it. The word, word. Word, you've heard the term the word of God, and oftentimes you'll have pictures of the Bible that will pop into your head, and that would be accurate. The word of God comes in three forms. The word of God in text is the scriptures, known as the Bible. The word of God in person is Jesus Christ. Everything in that text spoke of one. It spoke of the one known as the Messiah in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it's called the Christ, the Christos. The one who is anointed. That's the Greek translation of Messiah in the Hebrew. And the one that is going to come who will be anointed by the Holy Spirit to do the work of rescue, of salvation. This one is known as Jesus Christ. And so the word of God in text is the Bible, the scriptures. The word of God in person, in actual body form, that it fulfills everything in that text. Everything. It's amazing when you study him. His name is Jesus Christ. And then what that word in person did, we could call the word of God in action. When he went to work, he fulfilled all that the Bible says. But what did the Bible say he was going to do? It said he was going to bear the reproach. It says that he was going to be born of a virgin in the town of Bethlehem. He would be without sin and he would remove the iniquity of that land in one singular day. His goings forth would be from of old and everlasting. And when he comes, he will be God with us. Jesus came and did exactly that. And at the epicenter of all history, he accomplished it. The word of God in text foretold it. The word of God in person performed it. And that is the center that you build on. It's called the word. You build and you put your faith right there and you say, I am going to stand right here and I'm not budging from here because I believe what it says. I believe that it, when it says that there is no other way to find life outside of this work. Call me crazy, O world. But I found something. And I plan on setting down my stakes right here. This is where I live. This is where I build my life. So the epicenter of the word. It's an interesting statement because you have the Bible. Let's imagine the Bible is this entire room and all the word of scripture is spread out throughout the entire room. 
And then one of you comes over and you find something on soteriology over here. You're like, this is it. This is the center. And then someone over here, no, it isn't. It's eschatology. And you're over there in the, in the corner. And then someone over here, no, it's what day of the week you celebrate the Sabbath. And so we're arguing like, ah, I don't know. Paul comes in and he says, hey, guys, you need to know where the center is. It's this man and what that man did. All those other things matter, but they need to have context first. They need to flow out of something more important. And that is the secret of a united body. We build upon the epicenter. And the epicenter of the word is a man and what that man did. Jesus and him crucified. So the epicenter of history. I'll I'll read a little passage and you can sort of look into it. It's a good history book here. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost, sort of a strange statement, that's the spirit, his life within, and behold, the veil of the temple was rent in two from top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. Boom. Big event. Right there. Jesus Christ breathes his last. God hallmarks the situation and says, don't miss this one, guys. And shakes Jerusalem. There's a lot of things happening in there. I don't know if you've ever studied that. Just stopped for a little bit and realized that dead people rose again and then came out after his resurrection and wandered around a little. And so we were joking this semester amongst the students, like, what did they do until his resurrection? They're like hanging out in this uh, grave and like, great, I mean, this is taking forever. <laughs> I mean, it's sort of a strange statement. This is what it says. I, it doesn't give you any more elucidation on it. It just sort of says it and leaves it sort of hanging. But long and short, we have the marking of an earthquake. The greatest moment in all of history had an earthquake with it. Isn't that just a fascinating thought? And so before you start you know, looking down on earthquakes, just remember God seemed to use an earthquake here to make a statement. Something happened here. God is marking an epicenter. Don't miss it, guys. He's putting an exclamation mark over it. The two great earthquakes of the gospel. Did you know that there's more than one earthquake? At the resurrection of Jesus Christ, three days later, we have ourselves another earthquake. So the cross, there was an earthquake. The resurrection, there's an earthquake. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. And so you can look into that any way you want. But long and short, we have another exclamation mark. Don't miss this, guys. One of the things you're going to notice is that it's all happening in a very nearby vicinity. The cross isn't that far from that grave, which is also not that far from something else that's going to happen, but I'm not going to give that away. I'm saying that God is hallmarking something, and it's all in a place called Jerusalem. Jerusalem is another way of describing in the Bible the bride of Christ, the place where God is going to place his presence and live among them. There's something about this that is fulfilling all righteousness, and God is going... And I'm not going to say it, but he's also going to go over here. But I didn't say that. I'm going to leave you hanging for a while. (laughs) The secret to understanding the scriptures. 
Live, breathe, study, reason, and interpret from this spot, the most dangerous place on earth. If you really want to understand what God means in the scriptures, you can't stand on the top of some far mountain and stare back at Jerusalem. You can't stand, you know, over here in the country of Syria and stare back. You have to get on that spot and look at everything from that location. You reason from the cross. You don't reason to it to figure out if it's necessary. You reason from it. Everything in the Old Testament leads up to the cross. Everything. Everything points to it. Everything prepares the people for it. This is what's going to happen. This is what you need. The reason God gave them the law is to show them they needed a Savior. Hey, how are you guys doing? I can't do this. All right, what do you need? I need help. All right, I've got it for you. And he is going to come, and this is how you'll recognize him. Everything in the Old Testament points to him. So he goes up the high hill to Calvary, and then he does it. He fulfills it all. The entire New Testament is merely that which flows out of that great work on the cross. The way you understand the entirety of the New Testament is you must understand that he fulfilled all righteousness. He did it, and that is the source of life and the only source. So, the secret to understanding the scriptures. I just gave it to you. You need to build on the epicenter. You need to reason from the epicenter. Acts 8. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury, had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot, He was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. So he's a Jew, an Ethiopian Jew, and he's in the wilderness or the desert, okay, which is an incredible picture of how the gospel works here. You have a man who knows something. He knows the epicenter. He has witnessed the power of the cross in his life. His name is Philip. He is a carrying device for that word, that celebratory word of the gospel. However, here's a man who has the Old Testament, but he doesn't understand it. There's a key that is needed to unlock the Old Testament. The Jews may have the truth of Scripture, but if they reject Jesus, they don't have the key that unlocks the mystery of it. This is a Jew that has the Scriptures sitting in his chariot, but he's still stuck in the wilderness. He doesn't know how to enter the land of promise. What does he need? He needs a key. There is one key, just like I called it the North Star. There's one solution for your compass. If you want to walk a straight line and live this life the way you're intended, you must have the right North Star. You must have the right key to stick in the lock, and then it unlocks the mysteries of the Bible. And so here's a man facing a mystery known as the book of Isaiah. He's like, what in the world does this mean? And so Philip gets in his chair and says, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. Now you try and reason through that situation, that scripture in Isaiah, from any other location than the epicenter, and you're going to miss it. However, stand in the epicenter. Now get that scripture. Who's it talking about? We all know. Of course, if you grew up in the church, this is sort of obvious. But that's because we found Jesus. That's the reason this is obvious. To the Jew that doesn't accept Jesus, he doesn't see it. 
The epicenter solves. The epicenter gives the, the, the solution to the riddle. This is a riddle. Until you know Jesus. Now you look at that and you're like, well, that's pretty obvious. That's the cross. Uh, yeah, but that's the entire Old Testament. You start looking at everything in the Old Testament, stick Jesus into the law, because like, yeah, let's just talk about Jesus. Yeah, let's just talk about Jesus again. Oh, yeah, again, the manna, the rock. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the temple, tabernacle, oh, yeah, the priest. Yeah, it's all Jesus. That's right. That's the point. You see, Jesus solves the riddle. He is the word of God in a body. He unlocks the mystery, and then what he does fulfills everything that was promised and everything that gives us life. So, the man is struggling with the book of Isaiah. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Didn't preach some just doctrine. He preached the center. He preached the epicenter. And that is the solution for every single person. But I fear lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. The word simplicity means singularity of focus. So remember I, I said, imagine the Bible is like the strewn out throughout this entire room. So you have the word of God. It's all true, but it's strewn out through this entire room. We need to figure out how to reason through this. How do we rightly handle all these words? The way to rightly handle is you need to have an epicenter. You need to have a middle. You need to have a, a middle of the middle. You need to have the center. You need to know what you're reasoning from. The devil's agenda is to beguile us through his subtlety so that our minds should be corrupted, so that we would lose sight of the middle and get distracted with the other pieces. It's all true, and the enemy is very good at distracting the body of Christ, even with the Bible. The Bible is subservient to a greater purpose, and that's to us finding the treasure that it leads us to. Imagine if I had a map to buried treasure here, and it leads to a big X that marks a spot, or I could say a cross that marks a spot, but that would be too obvious of what I'm trying to say. So there's an X that marks a spot, and you've been given a map to it. How ridiculous if you get off course of the map and say, oh, well, yeah, there's a treasure there, but yeah, but look at this. There's a little swamp over here. I'd like to go swimming. You see, yeah, the swamp is on the map, and it's real, and it's true, but it's there to give you a sense of place so that you can stay on the straight and narrow and find something. What are you supposed to be finding? Treasure. Who's the treasure of Scripture? His name is Jesus Christ. It's a man. Not a knowledge, a man. My great agenda in marriage isn't to know facts about my wife. It's to know her. And there's a difference between knowing how tall she is, how heavy she is. I don't even know either. That's what's interesting. It's like if you ask me, I'd be like, I don't know, she's about right there. And how much does she weigh? I don't ask that. <laughs> and knowing my wife, I can read my wife across the room. I can tell when she's wanting to leave. You know, and every other guy's like, how'd you know that? I, hey, you just live with her. That's the same with God. You know God. You know Jesus and you actually can know his look across the room. You can hear his voice. And you know what he's desiring. How do you do that? Well, that's what life is about. You build your life on the epicenter in Christ. Paul uses the term a lot, and it's an actual purposeful term. It didn't say on Christ, near Christ. It's in Christ. It's a positional thing, and that's what I ask the students a lot. What's your position? 
And so we understand our position because that's the critical element of how the gospel works. So Jesus is meant to be entered like a door, like a strong tower, like clothing, like a house. He's likened to all of those. He's actually likened to armor as well. In other words, he is something you can enter into. The way we enter is by faith, by believing, by saying, this is where it counts. This is what matters. This epicenter, this what you did matters. This is my salvation. When you do, you are clothed. You are brought in. He's the place we are to live and call home. So the place of the earthquake, the place of our rescue, the place of our eternal living, the place of suffering, the place of victory, the place of war, the place of peace, the place of agony, the place of joy. Many of us want to strip out the negative sounding things from that list and we want our Christianity in our terms. However, when we come to the cross, we get the combination of life and death. And that's how we live. We understand that to truly live, we must die. We understand that to truly be sanctified, we must be pruned, we must be cleansed of our sin. And so as a result, we stand in a bright light. And though that is hard because there's a certain pang that we gain from being convicted of our sin and being considered wrong in our behavior, to acknowledge that and say, this is my life though. To remove the weights that are besetting us and hindering us from moving forward actually strengthens our life. And so this is the place we call home. It's the place of the earthquake. So you could have the human mentality towards it and go, no way, no way, I don't want to be there. Or you could have the new mind towards it that says, Lord, bring me there. That's where I want to spend my eternity. I want to be where you are, even if it's painful, even if it's difficult. Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple. So when I say temple, just think house. Destroy this house, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, 40 and six years was this house in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spoke of the house of his body. Jesus himself is likening his very body to a house. And he says, those that believe in me enter into that house. It's an amazing thought. And where is that house planted? Where, what's its real estate? Its address is Cross, Jerusalem, ah, Golgotha. Well, the place of dead heads. You ever uh, studied what Golgotha is, the place of the skull? The place of dead heads. Every head is a symbol of authority. Who's the head of the church? Jesus. Jesus crushes the head of that which rules you and becomes your head. It's the place of dead heads. You want to come here and live? Not really. And yet that's where we're invited. Are you willing to call this dangerous place home? So let's do a quick analysis of our readiness for such a living quarters. Are you willing to sell all other property and move here to this place? Are you willing to throw away everything that can't coexist in this divine and heavenly home? Are you willing to move into a place where the sound of war will be the background score to your life? Are you willing to choose the ignominy that is associated with this location? For those of this earth who call those who dwell here fools, idiots, the off-scouring of the world, refuse, garbage, ignorant, small-minded, intellectually inferior. Believe me, it feels really good to be called those things. Are you willing to fall in love with this place, cherish it as your eternal dwelling and covenant to never leave, whether in sickness or in health, whether living in plenty or in want, and whether amidst bomb blasts or the cooing of turtle doves? Are you willing to make the epicenter of the most dangerous earthquake in universal history your dwelling place? There is only one house, one house in which you can find salvation. Every other house will be burned up. Every other house will be condemned. Unless you find refuge in that house, you're like, but couldn't it find a different address? Why does it have to be located there? Couldn't it be in a nice mountainside chalet? 
Instead, it's right smack in the middle of the war zone. It says you have to find your way to that house. You get inside of that door and you will live. In the middle of the bombs? The bombs cannot destroy that house. It's impermeable to them. It's impervious. As a result, you find your refuge in the most dangerous place on earth, and in that place, you find life and life abundant. Out of all the real estate on earth, there is actually, there is actually one lone option. By man came death. In Adam, all die. The Bible, Paul calls it the old man, the old house. If you live in the old house, you die. All of us are a descendant of Adam. We all inherit that house as our first dwelling. We must choose to put off our old house and enter into a new house. It's called the new man, and his name is Jesus Christ. By man came also the resurrection of the dead. In Christ shall all be made alive. If you remain in Adam, who usually has a better address, and it's a lot sweeter environment to live, and there's more of the cooing of turtle doves there. However, if you don't put that off, and relinquish that in your life and enter into the life of Christ, you die. In Christ shall all be made alive. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man. Didn't you put off that old house with his deeds and have put on the new man? which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Come to the epicenter and live. So, in the most basic sense of how Christianity works, you need to recognize that as long as you remain in Adam, you are vulnerable to eternal hellfire because that's what will kindle upon it. There's only one house in all of this world that can save you in which the hellfire cannot kindle. And it will be saved and secure in the midst of judgment. There's only one house. So you must put off. You must leave and depart and repent of your first house. And enter in by faith into the second house. The person of Jesus Christ. Come to the epicenter. Come to the center of the earthquake. Yes, it's, it's, a, it's a war zone. Come here and live. Who comes to the center of a war zone to live? Isn't that a funny thought? That's Christianity. So there's two different ways that we could... Uh, come to this war zone, this earthquake, this epicenter. Some of us just want to do a little window shopping. It's like, okay, I'm going to, uh, Jesus, I'm going to try and get on your good side, so I'm going to go visit the epicenter. And so we come and stare at the cross a little and go, well done. You did good. But we don't really want to live there. And so we're going to call that a visit. A visit to the epicenter. Many of us do that. Uh, unintentionally. It's not like we're purposely trying to make some declaration, I will not live there. We're just saying, hey, I go to visit. I go and I lay down some flowers on the memorial and then I, I scamper out of there because bombs are going off and bullets are flying. I don't want to live here. There's a difference between what God calls us to do and what many of us do. God doesn't call us to visit Christ. He calls us to abide in Christ, to call it our home. There's a big difference between if I visit someplace I may visit Starbucks, but I'm not rolling out a sleeping bag and sleeping there. There's a big difference between the two, and many of us have a Starbucks relationship with God. We show up, we're even regulars, but we don't live there. We don't call it our home. We don't find our life and sustenance there. So let's look at the difference between a visit and an abiding. A visit is a stopover, a short-term excursion, a stay that is not intended to be permanent. Abiding, on the other hand, is moving in, remaining, deciding that this is the spot. 
Staying no matter the challenges, adapting to whatever the house demands and cherishing and caring for the place as, it, as if it is your very own. When it's your very own, have you noticed that you get defensive of it? I mean, it's funny. You know, I, I've somehow over the years adopted the Denver Broncos, even though I'm always trying to give them up, lay them down, surrender them. Somehow you get identified with like a football team, right? And then someone criticizes that football team. We had a Chiefs fan in here this last week that was criticized. I see him back there. Uh, that was criticizing the Broncos, making fun of them a little. And I found myself, I didn't even watch the game. Hey, I'm being all spiritual. I'm like, I'm going to focus on Jesus Christ and on my family. I'm going to do this right. And the next thing you know, I'm like, hey, hey, the Broncos still can do it. I'm finding myself defensive of them. How much more? The epicenter. This is your home. This is your family. This is your life. People can't just blaspheme it. They can't mock it. Hey, hey, this is where I live. This is important to me as opposed to I'm just a visitor. I have nothing to do with this. You know, hey, don't, don't associate me with them. So I, I showed, shared this with the students this week. This is what's called a bud graft. And so what you have is two aspects to a grafting uh, into a vine. So in, in John 15, we have this idea of a vine and branches. And so that vine is the big, thick thing in the middle. It's also known as the rootstock. And in that rootstock is life. There's actually a living sap inside of that rootstock. And that little thing on the outside is known as the scion. That's, that's us, okay? It, apart from that rootstock, we can't live. So apart from me, says Jesus, you have no life. You can do nothing. You cannot produce fruit because you are disconnected from life. So for that that scion to actually enter into the life, you know what needs to happen? The rootstock needs to be cut. It needs to be opened. And that life needs to be made vulnerable and able to be given and shared. Can you, can you say uh, spear inside? And the life, the living river of God, blood and water, which is the concept of life water to a Jew, the Jew looks at blood as life. And so you have life water, living water, the rivers of living water. And it flows out of his side. It's made available. And then we must enter in through that suffering, through those wounds, into that habitat, into that home. This is us. He's opened up for us. And then he wraps himself around us. And then we don't visit. We abide. I don't know how that sign's going to get out of there. I mean, that's pretty tight. Could you imagine? Like, ah, this is a little uncomfortable, guys. I got serious life coming into me. You see, truly, if you've yielded to life, it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing for the scion to actually be locked in. I'm locked into a marriage with Leslie. I'm not getting out. Oh, I love it. That's the way I want it. It's called covenant. You see, a covenant is a good thing, not a bad thing. It's not a ball and chain. A lot of people have the wrong concept of what it means to give up your life to Jesus. You're not ball and chaining it through your life. You're living. You're alive, full of joy. That's what you find in that rootstock, is the living sap of God. Now it's in you, and it's life. Uh-oh. The third earthquake. And what's amazing is each one of these, if we were going to describe the gospel, we'd describe it in three pieces. The death, the burial and resurrection, and then the giving of his life into us. It's known as Pentecost, Acts 2, but very specifically, it's the indwelling. You see, Jesus didn't just come 
to forgive us of sins, he came to make us prepared as a vessel to have him live inside of us, in and through us, so that we could bear the fruit of an unseen world, heaven, so that this world could actually see Jesus in and through us. And did you know that there was an earthquake? I know, it's not the way we'd usually look at it, but look at this. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken. Hey, that's earthquaking right there. Where they were assembled together and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. Isn't that an amazing thought? We got another shaking. We have another signal. Exclamation mark. Do you see it, guys? Cross, burial, resurrection, Pentecost. God is hallmarking this. He says, this is where you live, the place of the earthquake. God has come to abide in us. So Paul may sound confused at first. What is he saying? You need to be in Christ. And then we're like, okay, I've got that. What's your position, by the way? In Christ. And then he comes back and he says, and Christ is supposed to be in you. Whoa, 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 whoa. Did I miss something here? If I'm in Christ, then what's this whole thing about Christ being in me? So here you are in this body. You got problems. Jesus comes to rescue you, to make you ready to to have something happen in your life. He enfolds you. He gives you his work on the cross because your work is insufficient. He gives you his sinless life. He wraps you in it so that you can now come before a holy, holy, holy God because you have no business doing that otherwise. And in Christ Jesus, we actually enter into the holy of holies in him. And he sits down at the right hand of the Father. You know what he tells us? He says, hey, ask the Father now in my name, in this position. You're in Christ, aren't you? Yeah. Ask him for the Holy Spirit. Ask him for my life to now be in you. This is what it means. That's what he he set us free to do. He's literally brought us near. And he says, ask the Father that that life wouldn't just now surround you and influence you, but would literally be in you and empower you. God has come to abide in us. Remember how we are abiding in him? Well, you know that he's not planning on just visiting you. He's planning on living and abiding in you. Just picture a whole bunch of rope around that. He can't leave. He's moving in to stay, which is sort of scary too. Have you ever studied God? Holy, holy, holy God is coming in. That means anything that is not holy, holy, holy is going to get kicked out. He's going to make you like himself. And by the way, that's good news, not bad news. He that hath my commandments, says Jesus, and keeps them, he it is that loves me. And he that loves me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Jesus answered and said unto him, if a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him. Listen to this. And we will come unto him and make our abode with him. This is what has been accomplished. Jesus has become our abode, our house. And by faith in Christ, we leave Adam and we enter in to Jesus. And then in Jesus, we are now fit to become the dwelling place of God Almighty. And now God moves into us. Earthquake, earthquake, earthquake. God's saying, do you see it? This is the epicenter of how Christianity functions. But first, 
We must go to the epicenter and make him our forever home. A lot of people go to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit before they go to the cross. They're like, okay, I want that power. I want that life. I want that joy. I want all that good stuff. Could you give me like some uh, power stuff? I want, I want power. And what does Jesus say? First, come. Come to the cross. Come to the epicenter. Come where the earthquake is. Come right here. Well, could I have the good stuff without having to die? Could I have the good stuff without having to live there? No, is the answer. The way you get the good stuff or the God stuff, the way you get his life is you must die, step out of Adam and into Christ. This is the great secret, the beginnings, how the engine starts in our life. We first die in order that we might live. The death, I've used this illustration many times with these students. You have a glass full of polluted water. That glass is you. You're the container. God intends to fill you. He desires to give living water and put it in you so that you can dump it out on everyone. Give them drink. This is what you're built for. However, you're full of junk. And you're like, hey, call that junk? Because I've worked hard for that polluted water. Yeah, you know, I've... I've you know, I've done a lot to get that. And God says, could you dump out you so that I could fill you with me? <sighs> why we keep our polluted water? It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And then we're like, God, why don't I have your living water? Why, why? Because you are filling up, up the whole cup. You repent. Dump out the old. And now you're ready. And this is the transaction of Christianity. We must first forsake something in order that we may receive something far greater, which is called life. I mean, we're going to give up death to get life. And people are like, I don't know about that. That's a shady deal. I want to keep my death? Who wants that? I'd rather be condemned forever and live apart from God. What? Who would want that? Get it away from me. I want life. I think many of you do too. Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How do you expect to come boldly into the throne of grace? You have no business coming unto his presence. You'd have to be perfect. You'd have to be holy. You'd have to be righteous. You show me your credibility in and of yourself, and hey, you can come boldly. You know the context for this is understanding your position in Jesus Christ. If you really are in Jesus Christ by faith, if you put off the old and put on the new, come. There is no hand slapping. There's no hindrance. There's not going to be any blockage. The cherubim that have the flaming swords that block the way to life have separated and parted, and they say, come. If you are in Christ, you are welcome. And so the command is, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. John 15. Abide in me. Get inside of me, O little Sion. I've opened up my life so that you could receive my sap. Step on in. Give up your old ways and adopt mine. Come, give up your life so that you could live. Enter in and I will protect you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Abide in me, he says. Listen to this. And I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can you except you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. 
and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Continue in my love. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even if, as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you, that your joy might be full. A lot of ins, and that a lot of abiding. No visiting. I don't know if you caught any visiting in there. It's abiding. God means business. When he enters into covenant with us, he's not planning on leaving. He's going to stick around for all eternity. Do we recognize the seriousness of this maneuver? Let's get rid of our old, and let's go to the epicenter of the earthquake, the great movement of grace on this earth that fulfills all righteousness, that fulfills everything written in that scripture, written thousands of years before it even happened, in great detail. Just read Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. In great detail, it describes the cross. They pierced my hands and my feet. That was written a thousand years before they did it. Crucifixion wasn't even invented extraordinary who this man is. He is worthy of forsaking all. He is deserving of our life. He has condescended to unlock the door and say, I've chosen you. Enter. Find refuge from the war, from the storm, from death. Built to deliver the word of truth um, perfectly. This is... I'm going to try this. This is sort of a, a risky venture for me. But it's a, it's a finishing touch to this message that might be ill-advised. It could be a really awkward ending to the semester where you guys are like, that was weird. Uh, but that's part of the fun of being a pastor is you can try things and hopefully people have short memories. Uh, <laughs> we are built, one of the most flabbergasting things about Christianity is that we are designed by God to reveal God. Now, I don't know how many of you feel like you're doing a good job of revealing the perfection, the beauty, the holiness, the righteousness of God Almighty. And yet he has chosen weak things. I know some of you could say, hey, calling me weak? I bet I could beat you in an arm wrestle. You probably could. I'm saying he calls us weak. He has chosen weak things that apart from him can accomplish nothing, but in him and with him in them can actually do something that will change the earth. He desires to use imperfect vessels through which to reveal his perfection? How does he do that? I don't know that I can truly explain how he does it. Because I think most of us, if we were just to isolate our own testimony, we'd say, you know what? I think I've hurt more people than I've helped. I'm not sure how many people, I know some people, like for instance in my life, I have people that have told me, because of you, I know Jesus. Praise God. And I've had the opposite. Because of you, I don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. Ah. So how does God reveal himself through us, these imperfect vessels? So believing the word of God and what the word of God made flesh has accomplished. Here's what I'm going to build on. I'm going to say... That if you forsake that first dwelling and believe in Jesus Christ, that he is the solution to your life, God will use you, though you be imperfect, to reveal him in this world. 
There are two key things that are necessary. Think of that word of God. The word of God in text, you must trust it. The word of God in person, you must believe that he is the fulfillment of that word of God in text and that he has done it. You put those two things together and though you are imperfect, God is going to wield his power in and through you. He just needs a vessel. And he did purposely choose us, though he knows full well that we are ill-equipped to do the work. And he says, but I am equipped. Would you allow me? Two key things. You believe that he is, that that word of God in text is true. And that what it says of the word of God in person is accurate. And that what that word of God in person did is enough for you. So I'm going to read to you a paragraph. And this is going to be the enunciation. This is why I said this is somewhat risky. If you actually stare at the words, you're going to see a whole bunch of gibberish on the page, which is a great statement of our lives. We are a bunch of gibberish is the way we feel. Haven't you ever felt that? Like you go out to share the gospel. Some of the students in here that have just recently shared the gospel, I was given the illustration of like what it feels like to share the gospel. You're very lucid and you're intelligent. You have a clear grasp on the gospel. And then you stand in front of someone and they go, what? (laughs) And your brain just turns to mush. I mean, what's going on? And out comes this. Yet if you have a firm faith in the word of God in text and what that word of God in text reveals in Jesus Christ and what he did, guess what? It actually comes out. The message changes people. So in this, you're going to see that every word has the right first letter and the right last letter. The two things are fixed. Everything in between is a bunch of gibberish, and yet we can all read it. I'm going to read it for you. As humans, we don't appear to be the best carrying devices for the message of heaven, do we? Why doesn't God use angels instead? Or for that matter, why doesn't he just do it himself? Why doesn't he just come down in a cloud of glory and boom with a voice of thunder? But he has indeed chosen us and all our jumbled weakness to be his ideal communication vessels. That said, if he is going to use us, we must first establish two things in our life. First, a firm belief in the word of God in text. And second, a firm belief in the word of God made flesh and what that word of God in flesh did for us 2,000 years ago on that cross. When those two things are established, it's the equivalent of having the first letter and the last letter of every word in this paragraph fixed and established. The stuff in the middle is often jumbled, but the message will still perfectly get through the imperfect vessel. Isn't God amazing? Did we just read that? Did the world just hear the gospel through us? How does that work? You will be shocked for the rest of your days as a Christian that God uses you. But he does. He has chosen to use you. Your job is to give up the old and to enter into the new. This is where you find life, and this is where you find usefulness. You cannot help God outside of him. If you want to truly change this world, because some of you have big hearts, and you care about people that are hurting and dying and imprisoned and suffering and orphans and widows, you care, but you want to care in Adam's strength, and you want to solve their dilemmas with Adam wit and wisdom and willpower but you can actually not truly ever help a life in the way it needs to be helped in the depths of its being. You can give them a food for a day, but not food for a life. The only way to truly help someone is to give up your life as you now know it and enter into Jesus, the only one that can save. He'll save you, 
and then he'll save through you because you are a bearer of that house. Your message is come to the house. Come, give up everything so that you can find life here. We truly are, as Christians, though we be a bit jumbled, we're the happiest people on earth. We sing not because we're forced to. I'm not saying that every Christian knows how to do this, but I'm saying that's, this is what Christianity is. We sing because we can't help it. Even in the darkest times, the most trying situations, throw us into a prison cell, and guess what? God has told me what to do here. He said, rejoice always, Eric. Pray without ceasing and give thanks in all things. All right, all right. And as I obey his word, though at times I don't feel it, though at times I don't even want to do it, I agree with him. My rejoicing suddenly unlocks the river of praise in and through me, and I actually feel delight in the midst of a prison cell. Figure that one out. Welcome to Christianity. Christianity turns earthquakes into symbols of triumph, turns execution scenes into pictures of life. How does that work? I'm introducing you to God, the one who is intervening in this death hole known as earth to bring us, those that are undeserving and worthy of judgment, an opportunity of escape. Our job is simply to believe. Jesus, I need you. Here's my test for you. A lot of people feel unworthy of Jesus. That's a reasonable feeling since we are. However, if you have a desire for Jesus, a desire to be found secure in that house, you know where that desire comes from? It doesn't come from you. It comes from him. If he has given you the desire, that means he's called you. He's chosen you. And the fact that you even have the desire is like the invite from him, personally signed by him with his name on it, saying, you, with me, enter. It's not your worthiness. It's not your good works. It's not your spit and polish on your life that warrants your entry. It's his goodness. It's his righteousness. And it's his love that beckons you. The way that we honor Jesus isn't to feel shame and guilt over all of our sin and say, God, I'm not worthy of you. It's to say, you suffered for me. The way I pay tribute to you is to believe in you. That's how you show honor to Jesus. You show honor for the work that he did and the sufferings he went through by saying, here's my life. Let it be consecrated unto thee. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.